0: Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. I'm going to turn to John chapter 1 at verse 14. This is the word of the Lord it is eternally true and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have and we saw his glory glory as of the only begotten from the father full of grace and truth this is the word of the Lord let's pray father we pray as we look into your word that you would bless every one of our thoughts and meditations Give us your spirit that we may understand these words and believe them and practice them. Lord, I pray that we would live our lives according to what you have written. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So John opens his gospel as you remember with the wonderful a wonderful description of God. We learn there that God's essence is more complicated than is revealed by nature. We learn that the one God exists in three persons. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Before time, this triune... Uh, God existed in perfect contentment, perfect love, perfect peace. And by his inscrutable will, he determined to create all things visible and invisible, including man. Right? And man is the only living thing that bears his image. And incredibly, we learn that the eternal logos, the eternal word... The second person of the Trinity, as our passage this morning teaches, became flesh. Became flesh. This is the Christian understanding of our existence. Because because of the text of scripture, Christians care about our existence, right? Um, Why we are here and, and what it means that we are here. Some religions just don't care about origins and existence. They don't care, they don't think about it. They just serve their whims and pleasures. Uh, They're just concerned about the here and now and the present and the life of the mind. Some religions, like scientism, care deeply about origins and have their answers. But they reduced human life and its existence down to a product of natural forces. Uh, That's their story of origins, right? Unexplained explosions, photons, gravity, heat, pressure, elements, amino acids, sunlight. All of those things somehow combine to form mankind. But what you notice about that list is it's very impersonal. It's anything and everything impersonal. It's forces and elements and sludge. Christians, by faith and by the testimony of Scripture, understand that the worlds were made from nothing by a decree from God. And He did so to the praise of His glory. Right, that's why he did so. He didn't do it for you, he did it for himself because he wanted and deserves praise. Right, what exists exists because he willed it and filled all of it with his purpose. Right, he made it and it's filled and meant to carry out his purpose. By faith, we understand that the worlds were prepared. By the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. Right? Not elements. Not things seen. Things came out of nothing by the will of God. What you must stop doing, or what you must do, on the other hand, is stop interpreting all of reality based upon the criteria of scientism. Yes, science has taught us a lot about God's creation and how it works, but science is not equipped to teach us about origins and purposes. It is not equipped to do that. Have you stopped to think about the fact that so much of this world and the universe is beautiful? That it's beautiful. Have you stopped to think that that is because it has purpose? And that purpose derives from the fact that God made it. Yeah. Or when you look at those, you know, pictures from the Hubble telescope that they colorize, do you, do you get giddy about the chemical compounds that composes it? Well, maybe if you're a geek. You do. Do you well up with tears when you consider that it took billions of years for those chemicals to align themselves into that form? Well, that is fascinating if it were possible to to prove, right? But it does not make sense of why we awe at the world, why we are just in awe of the creation. We know in our heart of hearts that there is a loving, personal God who made all things out of nothing. In other words, we know there is an artificer. There is a maker. There is a God who delights in his words. Or if we don't, right, if we don't think that, we likely believe time and chance and heat and light accidentally made birds and trees and planets. Right, and emotions and consciousness and cauliflower. Time and heat and light and chance. In fact, that is just the kind of mind game that fallen creatures, that blind creatures, that sinful creatures would delight in playing. Right, man simultaneously knows there is a God. And because of his fallen nature, likes to suppress that knowledge and come up with a scheme that is far less satisfying. Far less wonderful, and, and, to my point, far less personal, far less personal. Leave it to sinful mankind, and I don't really have to prove that point, right? Sinful mankind. I mean, that doesn't need to be proven. Everybody knows that. Everybody sees that and feels it. Leave it to sinful mankind to have eyes that look upon the glory of creation, filled with reflections of its creator, and come up with a scheme whereby mud becomes cells, becomes organisms, becomes monkeys, becomes man. It's as if, That man is suppressing something really true in unrighteousness, isn't it? Calvin writes about this early in his Institutes. He says, How detestable, I ask you, is this madness. That man, finding God in his body and soul a hundred times, on this very pretense of excellence, denies there is a God. They will not say it is by chance that they are distinct from brute creatures, yet they set God aside The while using nature, which for them is the artificer of all things as a cloak. They see such exquisite workmanship in their individual members, from the mouth and eyes, even to their very toenails. Here also, they substitute nature for God. Substituting nature for God. Looking at the eye and being awed at it, and then just you know, reverting to nature and not seeing the creator in it. In other words, dear brothers and sisters, stop going along with the Greeks and the philosophers and today's scientists who say that nature is God. Stop going along with that. No, rather, nature is the order prescribed by a loving God who made all things for his glory. You can look on the stars... And believe that nature made them, and thus nature is God. Or you can look on the stars and believe that God made them for his purpose. Right? Which is nothing less than filling the entire created universe with his glory. You can disallow miracles in this world because you are a materialist. Or you can see everything as a miracle. Everything is a miracle. Our existence is a miracle, right? Our, uh, the structure of our bodies, our minds, our souls, our very tininess in this magnificent universe is a miracle because God did it and does it and sustains it. Chesterton, G.K. Chesterton, uh, waxed eloquent on this theme in his, as he always does, Right? In his book, uh, Orthodoxy, he said, as an explanation of the world, materialism has a sort of insane simplicity. It has just the quality of a madman's argument. We have at once the sense of it covering everything and the sense of it leaving everything out. He understands everything, and everything does not seem worth understanding. His cosmos may be complete in every rivet and cogwheel, but still his cosmos is smaller than our world. Later, he writes, the Christian is quite free to believe that there is a considerable amount of settled order and inevitable development in the universe. In other words, yeah, things develop. We get that. But the materialist is not allowed to admit into his spotless machine the slightest speck Of spiritualism or miracle. He can't allow into his scheme any kind of miracle, right? It's all just heat and light and gravity. Impersonal. Now, why why am I belaboring this on this passage about the word taking on flesh? Here's the reason if you deny there is a personal, loving, glorious creator who made all things by the power of his word, you will never believe that the same creator entered into his creation by becoming flesh. You'll never believe it, right? In other words, if you refuse to accept the testimony of the word by faith, about reality being fashioned by a personal God, you will never come to accept that the word became flesh and dwelled Among us, a naturalistic worldview disallows such an explanation. A naturalistic worldview actually abhors such an explanation. A naturalistic worldview, as Chesterton put it, cannot uh, admit into his spotless machine the slightest speck of miracle. And the word of God says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the word was God. 2020 or so years ago, in the womb of a woman named Mary, in a small Middle Eastern town called Galilee, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That, dear brothers and sisters, even more than the beauty of the stars in the heavens or the complexity of the eye's structure, displays the glory of the triune God. We live in a world in which the creator of that world entered into the thing he created in order to rescue those incapacitated and despairing creatures. That is our reality. That is our world. That is our world. Is it reasonable? Well, it is, <laughs> is it reasonable that you would view reality through the lens of the hypothesis of some dude named Darwin, who ironically refused to observe the ultimate glory of those tortoises in the Galapagos? The glory that testifies of the Creator? Is it reasonable? Well, no. According to today's standard of truth, it's not reasonable. But those standards are whacked, right? Those standards are not even capable of observing the male and female body and coming away with some objective truth about complementarity, right? Our modern scientists look at the female body and say she's a male. Is it reasonable that the world is created by a personal God who loves his creatures and became flesh in order to rescue them from their sins? Is it reasonable if there is a God above who rules over his creation? Is it reasonable that these truths would only be accepted by those men and women who have had God work in them by the Holy Spirit? Is it reasonable if an omnipotent God is there who works in this world Of course, it's reasonable. But, of course, the materialist says that it is unreasonable because he presupposed there is no loving God or creator. He says it's unreasonable because he's presupposed. He's cast God aside, as Calvin said. But if there is a loving God and powerful creator and his word testifies to the fact that there is, then the Son of God becoming flesh and dwelling among us is the most concretely normal, ho-hum reality of the universe. It is the way God works. It is the way a world in which there is a God would work. A God who speaks the worlds into existence, who delighted in the goodness of that creation, who saw then man fall from, uh, from his his holiness, into sin and fill the world with violence would do something like the Son of God did. Wouldn't he? The God who is love would do exactly like this. He would send his Son to redeem those miserable, despairing creatures. But we have to remember man is dead in his sins and even though, he, even though Jesus dwelled or dwelt among them, mankind did not receive him. Even though he has always been among us, right, we did not receive him. And it takes a supernatural work of God to open our eyes to this completely reasonable faith. That is precisely what we looked at last time. Remember, verses 12 and 13, right before 14, which I read, but as many as received him to them, God gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, or not of bloods, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. They were born of God. So don't let don't let even a sliver of materialism distort this view. A God-created world would work just as, as is described in the scriptures because the creator God also wrote that book. Miracles are ordinary. In fact, everything is a miracle of God's sovereign power. Right? That, that breath you just took just now is as much a miracle as God dwelling among us in the flesh. Why? Because a God who created all things made his world to work according to his plan and power. And everything that comes to pass is his doing. So don't think like this, really, if you struggle with doubt. Don't think like this, wow, that's hard to believe that Jesus is God and that he became flesh and walked on this earth. Rather, think this way, it is hard to believe God would not take on flesh given the fact that he is love and he made us to sing his praises. This is the kind of world we live in, one where floods cover the earth, fire descends from heaven, rivers stop and the water piles up, the shadows move back on the steps, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, Right, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the kind of world you live in. Are you suppressing what is reasonable? Are you suppressing what is normal? Are you suppressing all of that with your with your own theories that maybe maybe you got those theories from a comic book. You know? Maybe you got those theories from a science book. Maybe you got those theories from a, a pinhead at. At uh, the university, and yet you deny what God has written in His book. Now, moving on and zooming in on the passage, of, I mean, it really is absurd, right? Where we, where we get our worldview from? <laughs> I mean, some people get their worldview not reading books or not from outside sources. They just make stuff up in their head and think it's authoritative. I mean, that's, that's the madman's world, right? That's the point Chesterton makes in orthodoxy. He's like, the one thing that's, that's true about the madman is, is everything he believes, he believes 100%. There is no black or white. You know, he believes cows are purple. And there ain't no way you're going to get him off of that, right? It's just his head. Right? And so where have you take, where have you developed your worldview? Where have you what is your authority? Moving on. Zooming in on the passage a bit. There's so much more in this pa- I mean in this verse, it's dense. Have the verse open in front of you and look at it. Theologians point out that it is important that we understand what the Spirit meant when he inspired that little word became in the passage. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. This does not mean that the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, stopped being God when he became something else. Right When he became a man or flesh, as it is said here, he did not cease being that which he had always been, which is God. Some heretics have taught differently, but we must understand that when the Son of God assumes the human nature, he does not lay aside the divine nature. I mean, this is important doctrine, this hypostatic union, the union in, in Jesus of both the human and divine nature. It's laid out in the Chalcedonian Creed, right? That's one of the creeds that we as a church confess and hold to. Listen to it. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, Truly God and truly man, of a reasonable soul and body, consubstantial with the Father according to the Godhead, and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. In all things like unto us, without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the Godbearer, according to the manhood. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures, and then there's a bunch of adjectives, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of the natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, But one and the same Son, the only begotten God, the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. That's a lot of words. I understand that. But that's just a fancy and finessed way of saying the Son of God, when he became flesh, continued to be and ever will be both God and man. Two natures, deity and manhood, concurring in one person. Amazingly, here is also what that means. The eternal God became a man like ourselves in all things except for sin. He was born of a woman. He grew up and was a toddler, a teenager, a 20 something, and an adult. He hungered, he thirsted, he ate, he drank, he sweat, he slept. He felt pain, he cried, he laughed, he was moved to anger, he felt compassion, he was even tempted, he suffered, he died, he was buried, he rose and ascended to heaven. The God-man did all these things, and now he sits in session to the right hand of the invisible God as both God and man. What's remarkable about this is, yes, that he did so as God and as man without one nature overriding the other somehow, but also the love that it demonstrated. Listen to this from Hebrews chapter 2. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise also partook of the same that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Are you afraid to die? Are you afraid of death? If you don't know Jesus, you should be. Or if you don't think there's a Jesus, you should be. Even if you know Jesus, You should be afraid to die because you're going to stand before God and he's going to judge you. Right? And what he's saying here is by fear of death, we were subject to slavery all our lives. And it goes on, talks about Jesus. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. There he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. I mean, think of that. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity takes on flesh because he's sympathetic to your plight. And he he wants to come to your aid. I mean, that's glory. That is a glorious savior, isn't it? What a merciful and loving God. It boggles the mind that this world... This, that this would happen, right? And, and that it would, would happen for our eternal salvation, our lifting up, our peace and comfort. I mean, have you given thanks to the Son for his humiliating work for your soul? Have you properly contemplated how humiliating this work was for Jesus Christ, was for the Son of God, was for the eternal Logos, the Word, the only begotten Son of the Father? Next, notice that our verse says, we saw his glory. What did the apostles see? Well, they saw Jesus' transfiguration. At that moment, there was no question that they were seeing something more than a man. They were seeing deity, and it was glorious. The apostle Peter, uh, who was there on the Mount of Transfiguration, along with James and John, said this about that moment. In 2 Peter 1, we read this. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. They got to see that glory. Think of the blessing of those men to see Jesus' eternal glory. That glory that will fill the universe with light that we read about in the last book of the Bible. They saw his divine glory. Next, notice something else we learn about Jesus. He is the only begotten of the Father. He's the only begotten of the Father. This is an incredibly important point. The Christian faith makes a crucial distinction between the persons of the Trinity. Right? Here's how the Athanasian Creed puts it: "The Father was neither made nor created, nor begotten from anybody, anyone. Right? The father, not created, not begotten, not made. The son was neither made nor created. He was begotten from the Father alone. The Holy Spirit was neither made nor created nor begotten. He proceeds from the Father and the Son. Okay, this does not mean that the Son of God is created or that he is not eternal. The begottenness of the Son is a way of speaking of his eternal generation from the Father. Okay, the Son is the person who alone The sole person who alone has ever been begotten of the Father from all eternity. And from all eternity, the Son has been his beloved. In other words, Jesus, stick with me. You guys need to understand this. You can't check out right now. It's hard stuff. Sermons should be hard for you. Don't start thinking about lunch yet. I mean, we have an ordination to do yet. You're going to be here a long time. (laughs) Stick with me. The son is the person who alone has been begotten of the father from all eternity and from all eternity has been his beloved son. In other words, Jesus' sonship precedes his incarnation and his taking on the flesh. It's not by virtue of him taking on the flesh that he becomes the son of God. He is the son of God because he has been begotten eternally from the father. He has always been the son, the second person begotten of the father. And so think about this. Fatherhood and sonship are built into the eternal trinity. <laughs> now we can perhaps say too much about this because how this is, is not revealed to us, just that it is revealed to us, right? This also does not mean that the son is in any way inferior to the father. That's the area of the heretic Arius, right? Calling the son of God created and therefore an inferior being. But the father and the son, get this, this is important. The father and the son are not interchangeable, they are not interchangeable. We do not have a transgender God, right? Or a, 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 a God that can identify as whatever he would like. Right? The father is not the son, and the son is not the father. Well, well, who cares? Who cares about that? I mean, what's so important about that? Well, we care about that deeply, right? Here's what Augustine says of this in his work, The Trinity. He says, If, however, the reason why the Son is said to have been sent by the Father is simply that the one is the Father and the other the Son, then there is nothing at all to stop us believing that the Son is equal to the Father and consubstantial and co-eternal, and yet that the Son is sent by the Father." Not because one is greater and the other less, but because one is the father and the other the son. One is the begetter and the other begotten. The first is the one from whom the sent one is. The other is the one who is from the sender. From the son is from the father. For the son is from the father, not the father from the son. In light of this, we can now perceive that the Son is not just said to have been sent because the Word became flesh, but that he was sent in order for the Word to become flesh. And by his bodily presence to do all that was written. That is, we should understand that it was not just the man who the Word became that was sent, but that the Word was sent to become man. For he was not sent in virtue of some disparity of power or substance or anything in him that was not equal to the Father, but in virtue of the Son being from the Father, not the Father being the Son. That's all really clear, isn't it? Mary, you've got it. Come on. What Augustine is saying is this. There is no difference in the substance of the Father and the Son, no disparity at all in their power and glory, but there is order. There's order. It isn't that the second person happened to become incarnate and take on the flesh, but that the Son had to do this work because the father is the sender and the son is the sent. Right? Just as the father is the begetter and the son is the begotten. There is not interchangeability here. From all eternity, the son was commissioned to become flesh because he was the son and not the father. The father could not do this work. It would have been inappropriate for the begotten one to send the begetter. For the son to send the father to take on flesh. Why? I mean, what does this matter? What does this matter? What's the big deal? It matters because it teaches us that there is an eternal order in the Godhead. Two persons can be equal and yet have necessarily different works to perform because of order. Like marriage, for example. Husband and wife are equal, but... Not interchangeable, right? I mean, that's the laughable part of our modern culture is men and women are, are deemed interchangeable. It's laughable and disgusting. Husband and wife are equal but not interchangeable. The husband, as the scriptures teach, is the head of the wife, Right? She is no less a child of God, no less a human, no less dignified, no more a sinner, but she is not the head by virtue of her structure, by virtue of her sex. Right? Egalitarians never accept this. They basically assert that there is no eternal distinction. I mean, egalitarians, Trinitarian theology is messed up. They basically assert that there are no eternal distinctions between the Father, Son, and Spirit. And so they have no way to resist, by virtue of that nature, the interchangeability of man and woman. In fact, they have no way to to resist gender fluidity and homosexuality and transgenderism, which is why egalitarian denominations and seminaries have always end up supporting homosexuality, right? Interchangeable man and woman. Egalitarians have no ultimate reality in which to understand equality in the context of order. Equality in the context of order. The Trinity is to us that reality upon which mankind is the imitation, the image. So just as there is equality in the Trinity and yet order, so there is in all manner of situations in this life The implications of this teaching, not just, I I mean, the implications for that reality, that Trinitarian reality of order and equality, has implications for marriage, for economics, for governance, for parenting, for philosophy. I mean, it's almost endless, the implications of that teaching. And so I can't overestimate the importance of this doctrine, the eternal generation of the Son, the non-interchangeability of the Father, Son, and Spirit, the the eternality of the Father as Father, the eternality of the Son as Son, and the eternality of the Spirit as Spirit. And, And get ready for this, because as we go through the Gospel of John, we'll keep coming back to this, because John keeps coming back to this this the, the the Trinitarian doctrine is thick in this gospel, so finally, thank you really is finally note the last thing it says about the Son of God who became flesh ever to stay in flesh. He is full of grace and truth. This means that the Son of God becoming flesh out of the very mists of timelessness itself brought. Riches to us. Riches. To be a member of his kingdom, to be a member of an eternal kingdom, is to enjoy those treasures of his grace and truth for all eternity. Right? He came to announce salvation by grace through faith. You needn't complete an impossible task to come to him. He came with truth on his lips, no more shadows and figures and types. Everything becomes clear when the Son of God becomes flesh. He has revealed grace and truth in his very own person. So do you know the Son of God? Do you know the Son of God? Do you understand him to be reigning over this world? Right? If so, worship him. Worship him. If not, come to him right and then worship him amen